Let us pray. Father, I ask you to fill us with your spirit. Give us grace to hear what you would have us to hear, to learn what you'd have us to learn. And may you be glorified in our hearts, in our minds. May we love you more for what you tell us, tell us this morning. I ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. It would make perfect sense for me to preach today from our 1 Corinthians 12 passage. When I was going over the, the lectionary, I thought, well, this is perfect. Baptism, it's right there. Baptism into one body. And a description of that body and how it works together. And it, it seemed like it was set up perfectly for me uh, on this day. But I was irresistibly drawn to the Nehemiah passage, uh, our Old Testament reading. So we're going to spend time with Nehemiah this morning. And here's how we're going to organize the sermon. I'm going to walk through the sermon one time uh, and give sort of the some of the textual and historical lay of the land. And then after an intermission, we'll come back and we will walk through it a little bit again, giving some of the application. I will note that I'm preaching about a sermon today and a sermon that lasted from early morning until midday. This is so I, I the preacher in me says, yes, we're going to be here a while. The rector in me, who has a lot of other things to do, says, don't you dare. I do not know which of those is the spirit or the flesh, but a wretched man that I am who will deliver me from the bondage here. We will see who wins in the course of this 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 sermon. So some of the context of our Nehemiah eight passage. And we're going to go back a ways for this. In the Old Testament, God gives two great gifts to his people Israel. Two things that rise above all the other gifts that he gives. The land and the law. These are his special blessings on his people. The land was promised to Abraham and then delivered to Joshua. And let me let me say as I go here talking about the land, I am, I'm really talking about the Old Testament land. I'm not making any statements about current geopolitical situation in the, in the Near East. I'm talking about God and His people in the Old Testament. So God made the promise to Abraham of, his, of the land, and then that land was delivered to the people under Joshua. And this was a huge deal. This is a major thing for Israel, God's people. It was a sign of God's blessing and favor that they were his chosen people. It was more than just a place to live. It was a birthright, an inheritance from God's covenant with Abraham. And they loved the land and all that it meant. Their relationship with the law was much more complicated Sometimes they loved it and sometimes they didn't. At the best of times, they understood what the law was, that which was given through Moses. It was not just an order or structure for society. It was much more than that. It was that. It gave them order as a nation, as a people, but it was far more than just a practical giving of order. It was a Rather, it was a revelation, an expression of who God was. 
He wanted to let them know who it was that had brought them out of Egypt, who it was that was their God. And he did that by giving them the law. And the law spoke to his characteristics and who he was. He was the one who creates. He is the one who saves. He is the one who provides. And above all, he was the one who is holy and pure. And more than just a revealing of himself, the law was also an invitation to the people to enter into who he was. Here's who I am. And by living under this law, you come into me and you become also as I am. As I am holy, you are to be holy. And this is how you do that. This was a glorious gift to the people. And in the best of times, they understood it not as a just a great responsibility, but as a great gift. And they danced and they sang and they rejoiced over the giving of the law. Read the Psalms. The Psalms are full of rejoicing over the law because it showed them who God was and invited them in to His presence. It is a glorious gift, but it was also hard. And more often than not, they resisted the law. They left this expression of who God is to follow gods of their own making. And then the link between land and law became apparent. For living in the land ultimately was dependent on living within the law. And this was not because God was petulant and said, well, if you're not going to do what I want you to do, I'm going to take my toys and go. Rather, it was because health and life and blessing was only to be found in God and leaving him and in leaving him, they were shutting themselves off from his blessing. And from life. And from the glorious place that he had provided for them. Another way of saying this is that they were to find their true home Not just in the land, but in God. And the law was the expression or structure of that home. So after years of rejecting the law, rejecting God, they lost the land. The Babylonian captivity came. And this was deeply traumatic. The people or most of the people were taken out of the land. And this is a deeply traumatic experience for the people of Israel, God's chosen people. That which they thought was theirs, just theirs to have, was no longer theirs. And they were no longer in the land. They were no longer at home. There was deeply traumatic. It awakened in them an appreciation for the law that they did not lose after that. After 70 years or so, many returned to the land. Not all, many returned to the land. And the book or books of Ezra and Nehemiah record this. It is helpful to keep in mind that though Nehemiah and Ezra are clearly two separate works, historically, especially in the Jewish faith, they are considered one. They're they're put together as, as one book. And it chronicles the return of the people 
from the land. So in reading through Ezra and Nehemiah, by the time we get to Nehemiah chapter 8, there has been a return from captivity. Through many difficulties and hardships and oppressions and fighting with enemies, the temple has been rebuilt. The wall around the Jerusalem, uh, giving them safety and protection from enemies, the wall has been rebuilt. But when we get to Nehemiah 18, which is just after the completion of the wall, things are still not right. The people are still not at home, it seems. There are still dangers and and enemies aplenty, but they have protection and they are still not, it seems, home. It is telling that after all this rebuilding in the land and return, there has not yet been a great rejoicing in the land. And so on the first day of the seventh month, the people gather as one in Jerusalem. Now, the first day of the seventh month is a special day. It doesn't say this explicitly in Nehemiah, but we know from the book of Leviticus that the first day of the seventh month is what is called the Feast of Trumpets. We call it now Rosh Hashanah. It is the first day of the Jewish New Year, the first day of the Jewish year. And it is a day of celebration, of rejoicing. Ten days after this is the Day of Atonement, which is a day of mourning and repentance and receiving forgiveness over the people. And so they gather on this special day and notice what they do. It says the people gather as one. There is no statement that they were gathered. They gather as one. And they tell Ezra, you read us the book of the law. Now, this is unusual. There are other readings of the law in the Old Testament. But in those cases, it is the leaders who gather the people and say, you listen to what we're going to read. In this case, the people go to the priests and the scribes and they say, you read us the law. And what follows is a service. It is a liturgical service. It is a long service, mainly consisting of expositional preaching. This long list of people who I will say, Val did an incredible job of reading these names uh, today. All these people, they stand on a platform before the people. There is call and response. They're reading and they preach. They read the law and they explain it. Explain. Some people think this is translated because with the return of the people, it is thought that at this point they are transitioning from speaking Hebrew to Aramaic. It's a guess. But whatever it means as far as this, they are reading this law, they're translating it, they're making sure the people understand what's being read. And from early morning until midday, the people listen. And when the reading and the preaching is over, they mourn, they weep. It does not exactly say why, but we assume that they have heard the law and they have recognized that they have not kept it. And they are mourning over the fact that God has given them this gift. 
and they have not received it. And the Nehemiah and Ezra look at the people and say, no, 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 no crying today. No crying today. Today is a feast day. The picture in my mind is almost of this fussy priest running around saying, no, 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 today's feast, feasting day. Day of Atonement's ten days from now. You can weep and mourn then. Today is a feast day. Imagine me running around saying, hey guys, I'm wearing white today, not purple. No crying, no mourning your sins. You eat that cupcake, there's no fasting today. So the picture is sort of this fussy liturgical priest making sure that things are done right on the right day. But there is more than that as well. There is more than just liturgical fussiness happening. The law has just been read. The great gift has been re-given. Their way back to God and to home has been revealed. And the proper response is rejoicing. This is not to ignore the sin, but a recognition that hope and grace is greater than their sin. And their true home is now open before them. So that's the historical textual lay of the land. Now let me go back and just make a couple of points about this. I do not think that I'm making too great an interpretive leap to stress the restlessness and homeless feeling of the people when they had come and demand to have the law read to them. They are looking for something that the mere return to the land and the rebuilding of its structures has not given them. It has not given them a rootedness, I think, that they longed for in the home. Now, land and place are very important. I don't want to become a, a someone... Who, I don't want you to hear me as being some sort of Gnostic saying that land and place and, and, and matter are, are unimportant. They are. But they also are not permanent. Any one of us who have grown up in a place and then left it for a long time and come back are always struck by how things change. Things grow up. They don't stay the same. And the feeling is different when you come back. The place doesn't give you a permanent home. And they are looking for that. So I don't think I'm making a great interpretive leap in reading that in the story. But if I am making an interpretive leap, it is because I find this restlessness and homelessness all around me these days. So I see things through those glasses. It is not unfrequent, infrequent, that I get some sort, some version of the question asked of me, do you feel like you have a home? And this is not, I don't think, because they are worried about my well-being. It's because they're seeking a home. There is a great restlessness and homelessness in so many people I know. And I feel it myself. I was speaking with a friend just a couple of weeks ago about my concern over Christians' devotion to personalities and podcasts and the divisions and discord that I find so often accompany that. 
our following podcasts and all the, the, well, you've heard me speak of it before. He was a wise friend and he agreed with me. His response was, though, I think very telling. He said, I wonder if it is because we all feel homeless and we're looking for a home somewhere in someone we're looking for something to ground us. This is true about many of us. And we might think this is a new phenomena, but it isn't. I think it's very informative to recognize that one of the foundational works of Western civilization, one of the first things you read when you're studying Western culture and civilization is a story of a man, though though he has a home, is homeless and is desperately trying to get some way back home. He's restless, he's homeless and seeking for that home. And in giving us the story of Odysseus, Homer is giving us a good assessment of the human condition. Many of us are Odysseus, trying to find a way back home. We also see it in the story in the picture of Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. And because of our sin and brokenness, we are perpetually homeless. We are driven for a home. And the desire is to get back to the garden, to get back home. In times of instability and in uncertainty, this restless, homeless feeling bubbles up through the cracks of all the things that we have acquired and surrounded ourselves with, the things that we have tried to put a lid and cover this restless, homeless feeling, but it comes up. Rather than being a new condition, it is the revelation of what is continually present in humanity. Yet the story of the Bible is of God seeing and providing for these human conditions. And it is in recognition of and hope for the provision of God for this condition that leads Israel to gather and demand to have the law preached to them. Tell us again who God is and how He has made a way for us to come back to Him. But we are not Old Testament Israel under the law. So how do we as Christians relate to this story? Remember that the law at its core is a revelation of God and an invitation of the people to enter into Him. As Christians, after Christ, we have a far greater revelation and a far greater invitation. Jesus Christ Himself said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. All that the law was to do, I take up in Myself and I give to you. I am this revelation of God. And I am this invitation to enter into Him. To find your home, not just in a place, but in God Himself. We are celebrating and enacting this very truth in baptism this morning. The celebration of entering into Christ. 
And the invitation is not just to enter in, but to abide in Him. To find our home in Him. Through recognizing Him as our identity. By receiving Him in the Eucharist. By remaining faithful to His Word. By loving Him as we find Him in fellow believers. By loving Him and His and our neighbors. God says, you do that. You find your place in Me. You find your home. We're working through First Peter on Wednesdays and Mondays. This is, I think, the... One of, if not the great theme in First Peter. You are homeless. You are exiles. You are wanderers. Find your home in Christ, in who He is and what He has done for you. With the hope that someday, someday, you will be with Him fully in person. You will return to the garden someday. One of the most quoted statements of all Christian literature is St. Augustine's opening to his confessions. You have made us for yourself, he says, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It is so popular because it is so true. And so many of us recognize that restlessness And it speaks to one of our deepest needs. And we will not have that homelessness or restlessness removed until we are seated fully in Him. Look to Him, Scripture says, to ease this pain. Many of us struggle with that. And it is good to keep in mind if you're struggling with that, or if you're not. There are those who have found it and are content and feel at home. I would ask you to remember that many around you are struggling with that. It is a deep struggle. Be gracious to them. It is our job to show them Christ. To show them that home. To help them find it. I, I want to make one more point from this passage, um, but the rector in me is winning at the moment, so let me make it, try to make it very brief. Um, I want to go to the end of the passage and, and think again about the weeping and the being told, no, 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 rejoice. It is a little bit of a theme, a very small theme, I think, in the Ezra-Nehemiah passage. If we go back to the beginning of Ezra, Ezra chapter 3, we have the story of the rebuilding of... Zerubbabel's temple. And in the rebuilding, you have the people split in response. Some of the people rejoice, but the old people who have seen the old temple weep. And in a very poignant passage, Ezra writes that there is this loud rejoicing and this loud weeping, and so that you cannot tell if, if you're hearing weeping or laughing. You don't know. Is it is it tears of sadness? Is it, is it tears of joy? It is all mingled up there together. And this is a perfect picture of our life. 
now. Our life consists of weeping and laughing and sometimes not knowing which is which, not being able to disentangle the pain from the joy. When we get here to Nehemiah 8, there is a disentanglement. You've heard the law, now rejoice. Weeping will come in 10 days. Mourning will come in 10 days. Now you rejoice. Do not weep. As I said, it is not a, it is not a uh, dismissing of the sin and the need for mourn, but it is a recognition that the hope and grace is greater. And I think it points us to the end, to Revelation chapter 21, the end of all things where we are told that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. For now we weep and we laugh. We have joy and we have pain. But we recognize that the hope and the grace and the joy of what God has given us is greater. And we rest our hope, as Peter says, in the salvation that is yet to come. As we are seeking that home, do not forget to rejoice in the hope that is to come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.